0: From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today, we'll look at how Milwaukee's traffic calming efforts have affected speeding on some of the busiest streets in the city. Then we'll learn how the mild winter is impacting Wisconsin's maple sugaring season.
1: Nobody anticipated that there would be good runs of uh, maple sap in the northern part of the state in January or early February for that matter.
0: Plus, we'll get some tips on how to start birding in Milwaukee.
2: The easiest way to start is to get familiar with the birds around you, the birds you see every day. They might be the birds in your yard, the birds in the nearest park, the birds in the parking lot. You can ABB, always be birding.
0: All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. You've probably noticed some of Milwaukee's busiest streets are changing. The city is installing traffic calming measures like big concrete bump outs along corners or protected bike lanes. These projects aim to make drivers slow down and be more aware of their surroundings, hopefully resulting in fewer accidents and injuries for everyone using the roads. But have they worked? According to some initial data, the answer is yes. Jeremy Janine of Urban Milwaukee wrote all about Milwaukee's traffic-calming efforts, its successes, and its growing pains. He joins Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski to share more.
3: Just recently, Milwaukee was ranked in the top 20 cities with the worst drivers, a list we are not proud to be on. And obviously, reckless driving has been a serious issue for years now. So... When was it exactly that the city started to implement and build these traffic calming measures?
4: I think if you wanted to look for a date, the fall 2018, the city approved this complete streets plan and it was this idea that we should design our streets for all users, not just drivers. It should appear bus riders, bikers, pedestrians, people of all abilities too. So not Lance Armstrong, but also my daughter who's out there on a bike, and your grandma crossing the street to get to the grocery store, that the design should protect and encourage all people to use our streets in all ways.
3: So can you explain like what these projects are and what their goal is, what they look like? You mentioned bike lanes are one aspect of it. What other visual cues are people noticing? Yeah,
4: the, the key thing with all traffic calming and thinking about complete streets is speed. We know that your injury risk grows and your death risk grows exponentially as speed increases. So if you can reduce someone's speed from 40 to 35 miles per hour, you can do a lot to save their life in the case of an accident or a collision which are going to happen Uh, so the idea is let's do things to the street to encourage people to go a little bit slower Uh, one of the major things people are seeing in milwaukee is these concrete bump outs which is this little island in the parking lane and if you think about the open road, the open road in a TV commercial encourages you to go fast. Well, you go slow when there's kind of stuff next to you. When you're on the freeway and that uh, barrier is right next to you, you're slowing down. So kind of putting those in to encourage you to slow down. There's also the idea of moving, swapping the bike lane and the drive, or the parking lane so that the biking is protected by the parked cars. There's this barrier there. Um, it, again, narrows the driving field of vision, um, but also creates a physical barrier for bikers.
3: So one common thing in these calming efforts is they are along some of the busiest streets, Um, whether data of speeding or accidents support that. That's where we're seeing these efforts start first. So about how many traffic calming projects are on Milwaukee streets right now?
4: There was a proposal to build 50 last year. This year it's 45, but some of those uh, one item on that list can be 20 different projects near schools. So there's dozens and dozens of changes happening. Some are small, like, okay, in front of this school near Humboldt Park, we're just going to put this raised crosswalk in. uh, But near the Midtown Center Shopping Center, we're going to do a million dollars of improvements on Capitol Drive.
3: Gotcha. So speaking of Humboldt Park, some of these projects along busier roadways have a two-phase road diet as well, with extra measures added, like, here's the initial step of, say, the bike lanes and other things. And the next step is the, the concrete bump outs you talked about. So can you explain kind of the phases that Humboldt Park, the, the roadways along there, had, for example?
4: Sure. One thing to understand about Milwaukee is Milwaukee went through this great effort to widen its streets, and then it built a freeway system. So we have a lot of streets that are admittedly too wide by any standard, Oklahoma Avenue being one of those. The idea was simply use paint in 2020 to narrow the street, take four lanes in each direction, make it one lane in each direction with a center turn lane. There was some data that that worked a little bit, Uh, But then the concrete came later funded by a federal project.
3: And initial data is showing that these projects are working, right?
4: Yeah. The tremendous results have been seen both on Oklahoma Avenue and uh, Lapham Boulevard near historic Mitchell Street. If your goal is to save lives, they show that the data is likely to do that in any collision.
3: So let's talk about the one along Mitchell Street neighborhood. This section of traffic calming was a bit controversial. Why was that?
4: Yeah, it was rolled out near South Division High School and another elementary school, and the city just rolled it out. And there was a lot of confusion on hey, where do I park now? This is an example of a project where the bike lane and the parking lane were swapped. So it's a bit unnatural, especially for the first person on the block to park, because you're Usually the concrete curb has been this cue. I park right up next next to that. I want to get as close as I can. Well, now all of a sudden you got to look for the plastic bollards, the kind of the dividers to park away from the curbs so that the bikers can go on the passenger side of the car instead of the driver's side of the car. When you think about pickup drop-off near schools, that was a huge communication issue and a hurdle. And so the city quickly looked at the data, 69% reduction in speeding in that area. Uh, the median speed went down by 5 miles per hour to actually below the speed limit, so an incredible safety improvement, uh, but the city openly admits that it needs to do a better job communicating how you use it.
3: So with this data, let's talk about how it's actually collected. How are they measuring, like, this significant speed reduction?
4: It's a fairly, I can, for me as an outsider, I can say it's a fairly simple machine. I'm sure an engineer would disagree, but it's a little tube that's placed on the road, and you just leave it there in a targeted window, and there's, there's very key strategic decisions you need to do there. You need to get the data before you make any changes. You need to get the data after, obviously, but you need to make sure you're studying it in the same window. I think the city said they like to do a Tuesday through Thursday, kind of 48-hour, 72-hour review. And they now have that data in select cases and are trying to build more of it to understand, hey, is this working? Or we need to go further? Or, "Uh uh-oh, we went too far.
3: Yeah, so for the the two-phase projects, for example, is that, you know, seeing like, hey, this data is okay, but it could be
4: better? Yeah. I, I, we didn't get great data from the city on what happened just after they did paint on Oklahoma Avenue, but they did get great before data. So you can really see near Humboldt Park, lots of pedestrians crossing into the park, that speeds went way down when both phases were implemented.
3: As you mentioned, you spoke with the city, specifically city engineer Kevin Muse, and he says that the main focus and outcome of these projects is, of course, reducing speed. You mentioned speed is a big factor of someone's physical outcome should an accident happen. Obviously, we don't want them to, but what other key parts of this effort helps reduce speed?
4: Yeah, so, I mean, the big thing is designing streets in a way that encourages you to go a little bit slower. They don't mean stopping all the time, but just when you're driving, I don't want you going 15 miles per hour over. I want you driving the speed limit. It's kind of the goal of the traffic engineer now. And so looking at ways that can kind of make you feel, I guess, cozy, for lack of a better term, not this wide open road. But, hey, I'm driving down this nice narrow street. Uh, I can still be flowing through green lights if I'm going the right speed, Uh, but that I'm being cautious. And that gives the driver more opportunity to see people that are coming. And if yes, if there is that collision, that it's not a terrible outcome for everyone.
3: Bottom line, like make us focus more. Yes. When we're on the road. Yeah. So this is a newer effort for Milwaukee. You mentioned one growing pain for South Division High School. What other kind of growing pains did they learn from that is going to hopefully help them implement new projects better down the road or just change the way they go about it?
4: Well, simply maintaining this infrastructure is going to be a challenge, and we've gone through our first major snow season now with it. When we look at the concrete bump-outs, there was a little gap designed between the curb and the bump-out. So, like, why not just connect this? Well, they weren't connected so the drainage could occur, but you also got to consider our snow plows hitting this stuff. One of the learning curves for the city, Kevin Muse has admitted this in public meetings, is there's still reckless drivers out there that are hitting these poles that are on these concrete bump outs, and the city is spending more to replace those poles than it thought.
3: So is there a point in which, you know, the city would say it's gone too far? I mean, it's an adjustment for drivers regardless, but I imagine feedback is mixed and some people really don't like it. Others are fine with it. But, uh, you know, it's it's definitely a change of your pace, of your driving, of people's commutes.
4: Well, the, the city has explicitly endorsed a goal of Vision Zero, an international campaign to have zero traffic deaths. Unfortunately, Wisconsin had a record number in 2022 that came down 18 percent in 2023, but what seems like a big drop is still a very elevated number, and Milwaukee County as a whole still leads the way. Um, And Vision Zero is not just pedestrian deaths, it's people dying in collisions. Speed is an issue not just for a car hitting a pedestrian, but a car hitting another car. So any way that you can improve safety, I think there's uh, a thing that needs to be understood about reckless driving is it's not just someone stealing a Kia and driving at insane speeds. It's the mother that's speeding to get their kid to class, It's the journalist like me that's rushing to get to a meeting that's going just a little bit too fast. Uh, We're all guilty of reckless driving at some point, and we all could use visual cues and street design that encourages us to drive slow.
3: So there's these plans that they implement, but what's the process like for public feedback? Have they gotten a lot from residents?
4: Well, certainly with the Lapham Boulevard project, there's plenty of feedback. Right now, I mean, one of the key things to understand about public works is we talk about this effort started in 2018. Well, some of the projects that were on the drawing board then are now finally getting to construction. National Avenue is due to be reconstructed in a couple of years. There's a public meeting process right now for Sherman Boulevard uh, that these projects take years and often involves several public meetings about the potential street redesigns.
3: So given that longer timeline and the uh, the things that need to happen in order to plan and execute these, how many more projects are in the works for Milwaukee?
4: There's 45 this year. I would expect that rate to continue for the next couple of years. One of the key things the city did with its influx of uh, pandemic aid through the American Rescue Plan Act was spend it on traffic calming improvements. That money is going to run out by the end of 2026. Uh, the city has found other sources, uh, tax incremental financing districts, which are if you think about what projects those might be, like the new Northwestern Mutual Tower downtown. The increased property tax revenue from that could pay for street improvements nearby, but you only have so many of those projects. The city also gets state and federal aid to rebuild roads. You only get so many of those projects. So this pandemic aid allowed a surge in funding, uh, but that's going to unfortunately slow down in the next couple of years.
3: So with the limitations of funding and how much you get year to year, do you think it's still going to try and be as much of of a priority for the city as they can make it?
4: I think so. I think just that key thing with Public Works is understanding that you're not going to rebuild every single road every single year. It's going to take a long time to rebuild Milwaukee's network of streets.
3: Well, and as this continues, we'll get more data, and I'm sure you'll help us understand what's working and what's not working. So, Jeremy, thanks for coming in and sharing more.
4: Thanks for having me.
3: Jeremy
0: Janine is the president and co-founder of Urban Milwaukee. spoke with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. You can find a link to his article on Milwaukee's traffic-calming efforts at wuwm.com. And we want to hear from you as we gear up to cover local elections and the presidential election in November. You can have a say in our 2024 election coverage by filling out our election survey. You can find the link at wuwm.com. What you tell us will help inform the stories you hear on Lake Effect and WUWM. Still to come, we'll bring you our newest series on birding, Chirp Chat. We'll speak with two birders about just how easy it is to pick up this hobby. But first, the mild winter and early warm temperatures are affecting maple trees and the syrup season. We'll speak with a syrup producer about the impact that's had coming up on Lake Effect. On 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. To Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Warming winters have shifted the timing and length of maple sugaring season in Wisconsin, the fourth biggest maple syrup-making state in the nation. This year's mild winter is no exception. The one-two punch of the Pacific climate pattern El Nino and climate change had maple syrup producers scrambling to start tapping in January, much earlier than the traditional season start. Carl Martin runs Martin & Sons Maple Syrup with his wife and three sons in Rhinelander, Wisconsin. He joins WUWM's Lena Tran to talk about how they're working to adapt to warming winters.
5: I spoke to your wife, Karen. She said that tapping is underway and it's been a bit of a roller coaster. So just to start off, how's your week been?
1: Pretty good. Um, We did get tapped uh, a few weeks ago. Normally, we would still be tapping at this time of year. But with this weather, we were pushed to tap very early, tapping in January this year. And even with tapping that early, we probably missed a couple of runs. In my 50 years of making maple syrup, we have never um, seen uh, sap flow in January uh, in the northern parts of the state. It's usually you would have a lot of snow on the ground or deep frost or both. And this year, we have neither deep frost nor snow.
5: That is crazy, uh, to start in January when you would normally start around when
1: we would start tapping in February, but the sap normally would not run until early March, early in March, this far North in the state that's different in Southern Wisconsin. It'll start in February in Southern Wisconsin, some years, but in Northern Wisconsin, it's significantly cooler than normally. We do not cook maple syrup until March and usually not until the middle of March.
5: Mm-hmm. What does that look like for you guys this year?
1: We cooked a batch a couple of weeks ago. We'll be cooking another batch this weekend, and it looks like we'll be cooking um, Monday, Tuesday, which is still the end of February, next week. Um, And then we'll be cooking in early March as well. The unknown is how long will the season last? Um, And that will really depend on temperatures. If we start to see 60s, 70s, the trees will bud out and the sap turns sour the maple syrup doesn't taste any good. So once the trees bud out, the season is over. And that's really dependent on how many warm days we have.
5: So what is your, your hope for the weeks ahead?
1: Ideally, it either stays cold and we have a longer season and it continues through March into April um, with uh, periodic uh, warming some days could be that we have a really good couple of weeks where we have you know temperatures in the 40s maybe low 50s and freezing at night that's ideal for sap flow what we don't want to see is a warm-up of multiple 60 70 80 degree days uh, in a row we had that happen last year in april and it ended the season prematurely last year in northern third of the state last year production was down 40 to 60 percent because of a record warm stretch we had from April 8th to uh, April 13th. That, that would be the worst case scenario. The likelihood of that happening, unfortunately, is increased with, this, with the lack of snow, lack of frost, and this very warm uh, jet stream that we're experiencing.
5: What has it felt like to be monitoring the weather conditions and realizing that you're going to have to make some of these calls earlier than you have had in years past? And I mean, you said it's been 50 years. It's pretty unprecedented.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a bit of a, and I think this is true for all producers, it's a bit of a panic in January uh, when you start to see the forecast with these warm temperatures. Um, we run vacuum lines at our operation. Vacuum lines, you can tap them early and you will continue to get sap for up to a couple of months, two to three months. The challenge is really for my friends and counterparts in the business, particularly small producers that use pails or bags. You only have a certain period of time on those systems before the tree is going to heal over and you're not going to have sap production. So in those cases in January, a lot of a lot of my counterparts in the business had to make a decision, do we tap now, understanding that we only have about 45 days uh, with our pails or bags, or do we wait for more of the traditional season um, and tap in you know, early March, uh, mid-March? People did both, both sides of it. So you really had to assess the risk. For, for those who are running a lot of taps, uh, a lot of trees and running lines, part of the challenge was getting them all tapped. Because it takes a lot of time to get, you know, we run about 4,500 trees. takes, you know, us, I have three sons that work on this, and my wife and I. It'll take us and our friends, you know, several weekends to get those tapped. And for larger producers that are running, let's say 20,000, 30,000 taps, it takes multiple weeks uh, for their uh, crews to get out and tap all those trees. So that's why I say the first runs were missed in January because nobody anticipated that there would be good runs of uh, maple sap in the northern part of the state in January or early February for that matter.
5: And the potential impact of missing those but then having the season get truncated like you were talking about as we approach like March-April can really hurt down the line?
1: Yeah so you miss I mean for us personally we were tapping we probably missed uh 20 percent of the season by not being ready for that January-February run. So 20% of our production for this year is probably gone because of the early spring or false spring, as some people call it. It appears to be more than just a false spring in that it's not cooling down significantly. It seems to actually be a longer trend of warm weather, which is unheard of to have this mild of temperatures.
5: Could you talk about what it means to you to work with the land and then what it feels like when the course of things feels off and so disrupted?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um... We have a pretty close connection to the land. I've been cooking syrup for 50, over 50 years, grew up cooking maple syrup, and it's just unusual to have April type weather in January and February. And when I'm out tapping trees, it really causes me to start to think, what is this doing to the trees, to the insect populations? There's just a lot of things that are coordinated or have evolved with cold temperatures and deep snow. And as you start taking that away from the system, there's a lot of natural processes that um, are not going to occur as they have occurred in past years. I would say the one fortunate thing for this year is that we did have one week of very cold weather. Insect populations often get knocked back, reduced in size when you have very cold temperatures. Fortunately, we had that one week that was quite cold, but outside of that, it's been incredibly mild. So my concern for the the land the ecosystems the trees is what does this do long term and particularly if you see this in multiple years you know we're definitely seeing different winters than we have when i was growing up we were never tapping trees in february and definitely not in january so what does that do to our systems moving forward and i think that's yet to be determined you know i'm guessing in some parts of the state we're going to have frogs that will be coming out and singing which is always a great sign of spring um, but what happens then when we have a major cool down um, that could occur in March or April? And how does that impact those populations? Just as one example uh, of populations that can be uh, impacted or trees could bud out um, the fruit industry. I know is particularly concerned that they're going to have swelling of uh, the blossoms and the tree buds, the apple, the cherry growers, et cetera. And then we're going to have some extended cold temperatures um, that could significantly uh, impact that industry uh, across the state
5: mm-hmm do you get stressed out? <laughs>
1: um, no I, I don't get stressed out I'm I, I'm concerned um, I do like to um, communicate with others who are in either in the maple syrup business or other agricultural areas just to understand what their experiences have been you want to make sure that you're not personally over exaggerating what's going on when I talk to um, other growers other producers um, they have the same concerns you know whether, You believe in climate change or not? The weather this year is unprecedented, and everybody acknowledges that. And there's just a lot of questions about what does that mean for the foods we produce, the ecosystems that we all enjoy, you know, lakes, rivers, forests, etc. Particularly if we start to see this on a more regular basis, which it sounds like we may. We're going to continue to have these milder winters, early springs, false springs occurring, and as a producer. I need to figure out how do I adapt to that. So next year, one thing that I would do to adapt to this is I would be ready to tap much earlier in the season. Fortunately, weather forecasts are getting better and better, and then you can start looking out, you know, up to two weeks. There's a lot more confidence. Um, And if you start to see those uh, warm temperatures, if you don't have a lot of snow, a lot of frost in the ground, really need to get out and tap those trees earlier um, rather than missing that first 20, 25% of the season because we weren't ready
5: Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask you, what you think it looks like for producers to adapt in the future. So you mentioned, you know, being ready to get out and tap earlier. What does that mean? Does it mean like having equipment ready, having like lines, like sanitized?
1: All that. So making sure things are clean, making sure you have the available workforce to tap the trees and you're ready to mobilize and tap those trees. This year, we were just caught off guard as were other producers in that well, it's not going to run in January, early February. That would never happen. I think we learn um, lessons as we, I know, go through these seasons and we try to adapt next year. And now it's not going to be like, well, that'll never happen. Now it's like, oh, that occurred in 2024. And that could occur again in 2026 or 2028. You want to make sure you have you have a long enough memory that um, you're like, oh, that could happen and we need to adapt to these changing uh, climate conditions that are impacting the state and the industry.
5: Absolutely. What's your favorite part about the process?
1: I personally, and this is one of the reasons I cook maple syrup, my fondest childhood memory is the steam coming off of the evaporator. Um, it has a very sweet and a very unique smell to it. And there's nothing that mimics that smell of fresh steam coming off of a, a maple syrup evaporator in the springtime.
0: Carl Martin is a maple syrup producer and a forest ecologist, and he leads the Division of Extension at UW-Madison. He spoke with WUWM's Lena Tran.
6: First, you get the buckets ready, clean the pans and gather firewood late in the winter. It's maple syrup time.
0: With the warm weather and sun shining a little more lately, you may have noticed more birds chirping, making it a great time to head outdoors and explore our feathered friends. For a new monthly series called Chirp Chat, Wisconsin birders join Lake Effect's Excret Nunez to talk about different bird topics and highlight a seasonal bird. For this month's Chirp Chat, XGrid is joined by the Director of Education, Tom Finley, and volunteer birder Donna Miller at the Schlitz Audubon Nature Center. They explore how to become a birder and how to start birding.
7: I'm so excited to be speaking with you both for this first ever episode of Chirp Chat, and I thought it'd be nice to welcome listeners and introduce them to birding, or maybe reintroduce them to birding. So, Tom, I want to ask you first what do the terms birding and birder mean?
6: So we've always thought that birding here at Schlitz Audubon Nature Center is something that everyone can be involved with. And birding can be as simple as going outside or even looking out your window into your backyard to see what kind of bird activity there is. And birders are people who engage in that. Believe it or not, the conservative estimates for how many birders we have in the United States ranges from 20 to 40 million people who consider themselves birders and bird enthusiasts. So it's a very active community from coast to coast.
7: Absolutely, that's a very interesting fact. Um, is there a difference between birding and bird watching, would you say?
6: so? It's a little bit of a matter of degree. So sometimes people consider themselves bird enthusiasts because when they go to pick up the mail or maybe they're shoveling their snow, they hear some birds, they see some birds, and they think, oh, I did a little bird watching. And then those that take the next step maybe to start to identify some birds, maybe journal what they've seen or heard during the day, and even going so far as picking up a guidebook or some kind of special app that they could use that would help them continue to identify their birding skills and then continue to do that throughout their lives. Then they become birders and they're hooked and that's a great thing.
7: Yeah, no, I love that. It makes me think of maybe when you're bird watching, you're enjoying the birds that you see and maybe when you're being a birder or birding, you're seeking them out a little more. About right, them. it's
6: the next level.
7: And why would you encourage someone to take up birding?
6: One of the main reasons that birding itself is such a popular pastime in the United States is that anybody can do it. It doesn't matter what your educational background its It doesn't matter where you live. In fact, it doesn't matter what your physical ability is or how long you've been birding. You can start at any age. We have kids right here from our nature school that are three years old and they're becoming really adept birders. But then I might meet someone in a program here who is well into their retirement time and they're just starting to get to be interested in birding it's not an expensive hobby either i always encourage people to pick up a guidebook as well as a good pair of binoculars but other than that you don't have to invest much else other than your time and your enthusiasm and just get outside so it's great for your physical health your mental health and frankly your emotional health too
7: And um, Donna, how did you first get interested in birding?
2: So I started intentionally birding about five years ago. And it's a process. It's a good process, but it's a process to learn a couple birds. At Schlitz, there's probably been over 250 species seen, and you're not going to learn those overnight. Um, Birders often refer to what's their spark bird, the bird that first triggered their interest in birding. And I didn't have a single big spark. I had a lot of trickles, so one day flock of mixed spring warblers landed at my feeder and just to see those riot of colors yellow green blue and like what are all these little birds and it took me a couple of years to understand what they all were and then just watching seeing red-tailed hawks along the highway and understanding what they were going for hikes and having killed fly up in front of me so it all just kind of like built it was a slow build that I need to understand what these birds are and then when I started volunteering here there were a bunch of birders. They were birders. They were intentionally birding at the feeder. And they were actually talking about what all the different sparrows were. And until then, for me, they had all just been little brown birds, which is what birders call them, little brown birds. And to realize that they were all different species was just very exciting. It's like, uh, there's really a lot of depth here that I can, a lot to learn, a lot to know, and a lot to appreciate. Absolutely. And so
7: good news is that there are birds everywhere, but Tom, what are some ways people can start birding?
6: The nice thing is you can start birding in your own backyard. You can look out your kitchen window and see what the birds are that are visiting your feeders and then get outside in your local community, take a walk down the street, go to your local park and just start observing and listening and then actively engage with local groups, the greater community around Milwaukee and southeastern Wisconsin has numerous birding organizations and they're all welcoming to new people into birding. That's the great thing. Yes, there's a community that's established for so long, but they're very welcoming to new people as well.
7: I want to ask maybe moving more towards how to start identifying birds
6: the easiest
2: way to start is to get familiar with the birds around you the birds you see every day they might be the birds in your yard the birds in the nearest park the birds in the parking lot you can abb always be birding they're always there and once you get to know those familiar resident birds it's going to be much easier to recognize a new bird or a bird that looks different to you and add them on slowly my goal when i started was you know just five new birds a month in terms of identification, and it just slowly builds up and it's fine. And in terms of identification, what they look like, think about size, where you find them, are they on a pond or in a tree, what's their color, if you can observe a little behavior, and then sound. And the Merlin Sound ID app is a great way to get those songs in your head.
7: Yeah, no, I love that. It's a great tool to recommend for new birders. Okay so we went over some tips on how to get into it but what are some things people shouldn't do when they're out on the field and hoping to spot a bird?
6: I'm really glad that you asked that question because there's an ethical way to engage with nature and wildlife and birding is no exception. So we encourage people to act with reverence in nature and with quiet intention. So at Schlitz we'll make sure that we stay on the trails. It's a non-consumptive activity, birding is. We can do it with our pair of binoculars, a phone with our friends, and we don't have to trample off through the woods and the ponds and the prairies in order to engage with birds. In fact, the quieter we are, the more likely we are to have really great interactions with them. If we see the bird is nesting, we'll allow that to take place and not interfere with, the bird's activities. And then that's a much richer experience. And quite frankly, it's a more natural experience. And we come away with a deeper appreciation of that animal's role in in our environment.
7: And so what are some year round birds in Milwaukee that might be fun and easy for beginners to keep their eye out and start identifying?
6: There are several you can see in your backyard, in your local park and your favorite nature center. And they're hopefully ones that we can all identify with. And if you haven't identified with them, they're great spark birds, ways to get introduced to birding. Certainly the American Robin is a wonderful one. A lot of people don't realize they're a non-migratory flocks. Sometimes we think that they all go away for the winter, but there are plenty that stay around this area. So that's a one we can all identify with because we usually hear them about 4.30 in the morning with their beautiful thrush voices. And for me personally, The northern cardinal is one that sparked my interest in birding many, many years ago. And that's another year-round bird. It brings color. It brings enthusiasm to the winter landscape and literally and physically makes you feel better when you see and you hear that gorgeous bird.
7: Thank you for sharing that. I know that the Schlitz Audubon Nature Center is a great place to become familiar with birds but what are some other great spots in and around Milwaukee to find birds?
6: One of my favorite places is to head down to Lake Park in Shorewood. It's got gorgeous ravines, it's very accessible and that too is right along Lake Michigan so you can enjoy the wooded forested ravines and of course the lake. That's a great park for so many people to get to it's a Milwaukee County Park and they have a wonderful warbler migration in spring and then birds throughout the entire year so check out Lake Park
2: yes lake park is fabulous the lake front is fabulous for ducks in the winter so everything from down at the Oak Creek outlet at the south end of Grant Park up to Schlitz Audubon any of the lake front areas are going to have fun ducks through the winter Anything along the river as well? So along the Milwaukee River or the Menominee River down in the Menominee Valley?
6: I really enjoyed downtown uh, Wauwatosa. Mm. It's the Menominee River Parkway is fantastic. Mm -hmm. You've got Hart Park, and there's a beautiful green environmental corridor all throughout that fairly large metropolitan area, but it's a birding hotspot. And again, it's very accessible to people.
7: Yeah, absolutely. So at the end of every Chirp Chat, I'd love for guests to shine a spotlight on a bird for the month. Donna, what's a bird you'd like to highlight this month?
2: So in February, it's hard not to talk about ducks. And I'm going to go with the Bufflehead, which is an adorable little duck with a big head. And it's called the Bufflehead. And I like to think of it as having a big white ball on the back of its head, because its head is very round, disproportionately large and they like the rough water, so we'll see them on Lake Michigan just bouncing around in front of uh, schools of red-breasted mergansers or golden eyes, and they're just really fun birds to see.
6: If there's a bird that I would love to highlight right now at this time of year, it's one you might even hear in the background, the black-capped chickadee. It is a year-round bird, but right now they're really singing. They're all around the Nature Center and our local communities. Working back with what Donna said a few moments ago on how we see this bird and can identify it with four diagnostic characteristics. Its size, it's a small bird, kind of plump, but its head is somewhat large with a very small bill. The color pattern, it's not just a black cap, but it has a black throat. It has buffy sides and a gray tail, and it's got many colors that you might not otherwise notice. Then there's the habitat it's found in fields, in forests, in urban woodlands, and in your backyard. In other words you can find the black-capped chickadee everywhere. And then fourthly its behavior. This is not a shy bird. In fact it's a friendly bird to use a humanistic term. They come out into the backyard. They visit the parking lot here at the Nature Center and of course up and down the wooded ravines and bluff that we have here. So from a a visual standpoint, from an auditory standpoint, and just from an engagement standpoint, that one is a bird that is just resonates with so many people.
7: Well, Tom and Donna, thank you so much for speaking with me today and for getting listeners excited about birding. Yes.
2: Thank you.
6: It was our pleasure. Come and visit.
0: Tom Finley is the director of education at the Schlitz Audubon Nature Center. And Donna Miller is a volunteer birder there. They joined Lake Effect's expert Nunez for a new monthly series we call Chirp Chat. You can find this conversation and learn more about birding at wuwm.com. Coming up, we'll learn how to start an African-American heritage garden in this month's Dig In. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. February is African American History Month, a time when we reflect on the many ways Black Americans have shaped our nation and culture. Food and food cultivation is an integral part of that history. It's a story of survival and resourcefulness that continues to this day. Venus Williams is the executive director of Alice's Garden and the Fondi Food Center, and she's our regular dig-in contributor. She joins me now to talk about that history and how you can plant your own African-American heritage garden. Venus, as always, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect.
8: It is always wonderful to be able to share with you.
0: So what we're talking about this month is planting an African-American heritage garden, but to get to what that is, uh, we really need to talk about why these kinds of heritage gardens, an African-American heritage garden is so important. So what are the origins of this kind of garden?
8: The origins of an African-American heritage garden, of course, go back to Africa, Before many of our ancestors were captured and enslaved and brought to the Americas, we were agrarian people on the continent. We had multiple trades, but in every village, in every community, we cultivated food. And it was our ability to cultivate food in such an incredible way that made it so tempting for those who chose the route of enslavement to capture us and bring us to these lands. But we brought so many traditions related to food and the growing of food and even the cooking of food along with us. Even though food and land was weaponized against us, we still held on to so much of the beauty and the power and understanding that our ability to grow food was one of those things that could never be taken away from us.
0: How were these traditions carried down during the time of enslavement
8: until today? Throughout enslavement, there were three ways that those who were enslaved were fed. One was food was provided. So that was the food that was given to our ancestors by those who had them in bondage. That tended to be very minimal. You were only going to feed the slaves what you thought was necessary just to get them through. The second way that those who were enslaved nourish themselves was by procuring food we call it foraging now you know what it means to go out into the fields into the forest and identify understand and bring back what you could nourish yourself on and then that third way is what leads us to our conversation today what was produced so even during the time of enslavement many of those on plantations still um, had the ability, and in many places, the space to cultivate their own food. We continued to become free, and even through sharecropping, we were able to pass down the legacy and the traditions of cultivating your own food, nourishing yourself um, throughout our families. So as
0: people are looking to make an African-American heritage garden of
8: their own, what are the things that you would include in that space? It is a rare moment if you step into someone's garden who is African-American and they don't have collard greens. Um, You will find mustard greens and cabbage and turnip. So those leafy greens are very important to us, and a part of our cultural gardens. Tomatoes, we often think of tomatoes as the South American staple. It was really the Africans who really started cultivating tomatoes in this country. Beefsteak tomatoes, for whatever reason, <laughs> is a tomato that many African-American families will have in their garden. But there's another tomato that is really important as we talk about African-American heritage gardens. And this is one of the seeds that you can find from Sister seeds, S-I-S-T-A-H seeds, that is so culturally relevant. And it's called Aunt Lou's Underground Railroad Tomato. Every seed has a story. And when we are able to hang on to those stories, we're able to hang on to those legacies and these members of our ancestral lines um, are not forgotten. This is a seed, a tomato seed that is traced back to the mid-19th century coming from Kentucky with an Unnamed freedom seeker. and he landed in Riley, Ohio, and passed this seed onto a white woman named Aunt Lou. And the story goes on and on and on and deserves a show of itself. So the Aunt Lou's underground railroad tomato is one of those that I encourage people to put into their heritage garden. Another such crop that has a story that goes along with it is the fish pepper. The fish pepper is one that has been handed down and is traced back to a Black painter named Horace Pippin. And during World, I can say that, World War I, um, Horace Pippin was very much injured and developed severe arthritis. He read somewhere that bee stings help with arthritis. Now we're I'm not I'm not encouraging that to go out and get stung by bees. However, he found a beekeeper who would allow him to be stung by bees and in exchange he would give him a number of different seeds for the beekeeper's garden. It was just in 1995 when that beekeeper's grandson actually William Weaver found the fish pepper seed and brought it back into circulation. So heirloom seeds, and heirlooms we know are seeds that have been handed down. Um, So this fish pepper heirloom seed is also one that I recommend because it was grown um, throughout our ancestry generation to generation for at least 150 years. Um, Other things that you will always find in an African-American heritage garden are different varieties of green beans, and of course, black-eyed peas, also known as cow peas or field peas, crowder peas. Planting black-eyed peas is one of those things that we do um, in honor of everyone who came before us.
0: Now, you mentioned one of the companies uh, that you can get some of these seeds from, Sista Seeds. Are there any other places you would suggest people check out if they're you know, really hoping to cultivate this kind of garden from seed, from the
8: start? Yes, so Sister Seeds, which is owned by Amira Mitchell out of Pennsylvania, is a wonderful source and one of those newer seed companies. There's also True Love Seeds, and True Love Seeds has a diaspora collection, and all of those seeds are provided by a Black farmer collective. So the seeds come from all over the country. They come to True Love Seeds and they're distributed there. Some of my favorites from True Love Seeds are okra. So they have a white velvet okra that I just started planting last year in my home garden that I really like. We know that speckled brown butter beans are another one of those cultural African-American heritage crops And then I would also say eggplant. We don't think about eggplant as an African staple, but it really is. And they have a Nigerian garden eggplant, and it's called Nigerian garden egg. That is also quite wonderful. Another company is the Seedstead. So like the homestead, but it's the Seedstead, and they're out of Colorado, they have an African heirloom collection that has some very wonderful and some of um, some unique seeds that I have not seen anywhere, such as the bambora nut, which is actually a bean, and it's considered one of Africa's lost crops. It's also known as the Congo goober or the earth pea. And anyone who knows the word goober understands that as part of the dialect of gulliful goober. Gooberhead was one of those things that I heard throughout my childhood, which really means peanut. So this legume is known as the seed that satisfies because it produces so many beans. So we can cultivate all different kinds of beans and peas, collard greens, It is even a more powerful thing to do them with heirloom seeds and to learn about the countries, to learn about some of the history that was stolen from us and reclaim it as our own. For sure. And what better month
0: to really start to get into this than February? Uh, Now, looking at this month, as with every month, uh, I know you've been reading quite a bit. What is your book recommendation for the month of February?
8: If you really want to understand some of the African and African-American garden legacy, I recommend African-American Gardens and Yards in the Rural South by Richard Westmacott. This is a book that I have owned for decades and that I just pull out and glance through, learn from. I can reread, 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 and find something that I've always missed over time. But this is one of those that's near and dear to my heart and connects me to everyone in the Americas who survived, who did more than survive, who thrived so that I am able to be here and other people who look like me can live into the dreams that our ancestors had for us.
0: Well, Venus, thank you as always for joining us here on Lake Effect, sharing your work. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to see what spring brings.
8: Yes, yes. I look forward to maybe we'll be in the garden in March.
0: Venus Williams is the executive director of Alice's Garden and the Fondy Food Center. Every month, she joins us to talk about all things gardening and healthy foods in a series we call Dig In. You can find our previous conversations at wuwm.com. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, you can download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow is Leap Day, an additional day added to the calendar once every four years. We'll learn why that happens and hear from people who have special connections to Leap Day. Plus, we'll learn how Milwaukee's Great Circus Parade is being remembered in a new PBS documentary. That's all tomorrow at noon right here on Lake Effect. On listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.